You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Collaborations Podcast. I'm really excited for my conversation today with my guest, Peter Fisk, who hails from Teddington, England. I've been looking forward to speaking with Peter for a while now because he's worked with business leaders from all over the world to learn about the strategies and the approaches that shape modern business. Now, I'm talking about businesses like Adidas, Coca-Cola, Microsoft, among many, many others. Peter is a global thought leader. He's an award-winning author and an expert advisor on the future of business, on leadership and strategy, and as well as innovation and marketing. Now, our conversation pulls on a number of threads, mostly how collaboration can run inside and between businesses. We also spend some time talking about the cultural differences in both business and collaboration, drawing on insights from Peter's latest book that's called Business Recoded. Have the courage to create a better future for yourself and your business. Be sure to check out the show notes for a link to download the first chapter of that book for free. I came away from my conversation with Peter today, having learned a lot about the connections between collaboration and business, but really wanting to learn a lot more about how collaboration can be such an important ingredient for success in business today. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Peter. How are you today? Hey, I'm great. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Peter, I was wondering if you'd be able to introduce yourself and and maybe give me a snapshot of, of what you do and your background a little bit. Oh, wow. So um, Peter Fisk is my name. Uh, I work in the area of strategy, innovation, leadership. Um, I started my career in a in a semiconductor lab under the Swiss mountains at CERN. So I'm a scientist by training, got bored out of my mind with it. So uh, I joined an airline and then I was the brand manager of Concorde. And then I've worked uh, through a whole range of different industries over the last 30 years. 15 years ago, I started writing books. I've written nine books. The most recent books are Game Changers and then just out is Business Recoded. I have a company which is a innovation accelerator called Geniusworks. We work all around the world with companies as diverse as Suntory in Japan and Microsoft in the States. And I'm a professor. I'm a professor of strategy, leadership and innovation at IE Business School, which is based in Madrid. So you really don't have any uh, anything to keep you busy? It sounds like. I, I like to travel. <laughs> I like to travel. <laughs> so you just mentioned uh, actually your, your most recent book, Business Recoded. I was wondering if for people who are listening, you could give a, maybe a little snapshot into that so that they could get a sense of, of what you're talking about in that book. Okay, yeah. So um, I spent uh, the lockdown writing a book because I was trying to make sense of how the world was changing, not just due to the pandemic, but uh, before and certainly after the, the pandemic. And it felt to me like an awful lot of kind of the the principles, the models, the theories uh, of business were were changing pretty rapidly. And I got to the point where I drew up a list of uh, 100 business leaders who are changing their industries. They're the the shaker-uppers. So they're the shaker-uppers in different ways. So not just small companies disrupting from a technology point of view, but some of them are really big companies. Mm -hmm. And some of them are incumbents, some of them are uh, challengers. And I wanted to know what was different. And and what I learned from all these companies ranging from Satya Nadella in Microsoft through to Zhang Ruimin in Hire, one of the largest Chinese companies, 
what I learned is really that the old codes of business don't work. So the old models, the old principles, the, the MBA, if you like, which we learned 20 years ago, just doesn't work today. It's not valid. And, and I looked at that from different perspectives, both in terms of strategy, um, how people lead companies, how they innovate, um, how people work together inside and outside companies. And in so many different perspectives, we have a new set of codes. And so from that, I developed 49 new codes for the business. And it's really about saying, how can you create a better business for a better future? So it's building on the important agendas now, both with consumers, but also with business leaders in terms of areas such as uh, sustainability, such as privacy, such as uh, globalization and localization at the same time, technology, but human purposeful but profitable and how do you actually achieve all of those things which might seem in many cases like contradictions so i know when when i think about the concept of collaboration i i usually try to break it down and and i my thinking has evolved a little bit recently but i've been thinking about it in terms of really three things which is you know an overarching purpose like you have to have a reason to get together obviously you need an inclusivity or a people portion of it and a creativity or um innovation uh, imagination kind of element. I'm curious, how do those things or collaboration generally, how do they show up in your, in the need to recode business going forward? I think if you look at it inside and outside, uh, perhaps separately, first of all, it might be useful. Inside the organization, there's a great book by Reed Hastings, which some of you may have read uh, about the story of how he developed uh, Netflix. And you know, what is very, very strong in that book, which he calls No Rules Rules, is the idea about how organizations have become webs, non-functional, non-hierarchical webs of people. And it's it's the relationships between people which really count and, and the ways in which they, they, they connect together on projects all the time. You know, I was talking to one of the leading project uh, management gurus in the world today, Antonio Rodriguez Nieto, and he said, you know, we used to live in a world where 90% of our job was defined by our role description. So we had functional jobs. And about 10% was, was a project work, which we did with others. Today, we, we spend about 10% in more fixed, defined jobs and 90% of our time on projects. So most of our time, we're actually collaborating. And uh, I just went to um, Microsoft's uh, headquarters in Seattle recently and the, the whole notion of a job description on your business card, or the whole notion of a business card, actually, but the whole notion of a job description has gone, and the whole notion of primarily belonging to a business function or a business unit has gone too. So we've got a much more kind of liquid way of people working internally and collaborating from project to project to project and, and utilizing their skills. But the same goes externally. And I think, you know, one of the things for a long time which companies have done is they've tried to do too much themselves. And, you know, Michael Porter himself, he once said, focus on your core competencies as if, you know, you should do the things which made you great in the past. They will be the driving forces which make you successful in the future. And I think that is less true than ever. So firstly, the future keeps changing. And so what made you great, great in the past is unlikely to make you great in the future. But secondly, you can tap into the, the skills, the resources, the capabilities of so many companies today, so many partners. And I think the, the, the real thing is, is the growth of ecosystems. And so companies working together collaboratively, and you're not limited by what you can do. You are only limited by your imagination today. So the, the, the collaborativeness of organizations, uh, both internally, but also externally, 
is far, far stronger and an asset today compared to the past. So two things come to mind. One was from the, the earlier portion of your discussion there where you were talking about people coming to projects, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's a very granular question, but the, what comes to my mind is this idea of, well, how do you, how do you tell people what they're going to do? So the, the whole HR world must really go right down the tubes. <laughs> because their, <laughs> whole, their, whole, their whole existence is about creating a description of what, what the person's role is and all the rest of it. And if it is almost like a gig economy type approach inside a company, how, how does that play out? Or have you sort of looked into that? Yeah, um, so that's a great question. Um, and I think um, you know, part of the answer goes back to a great book written by Gary Hamill quite a few years ago, so about 20 years ago. And he started talking about the living organization and the title of the living organization actually went further back to Charles Handy about, about 40 years ago. And what we see today is really organizations who are much more living organizations. They have lots of clusters of, of teams of people who are living in their own way. They're mo- making up their own rules. They're defining what they do. They don't take the hierarchical order which came from the top in the past. Now, they're brought together by a sense of purpose and a sense of values, and the best organizations have that, if you like, uh, glue. Uh, but then they work on what they want to do themselves. And so I think much more self-managing is is a key kind of trait of, of the most successful, agile, innovative companies today. Uh, you'll see that in companies like Microsoft and Netflix and Adobe, but you'll equally see it very strongly in, in, in some of the Asian companies like Hire, for example. So Hire, which is the world's largest manufacturer of, of home appliances, so refrigerators and washing machines, they have a, a concept called Renden Hei, which they, they say is core to the success, which is really about creating micro teams of people. And uh, what uh, Zhang Rumin, their CEO, uh, over the last 30 years has done is really created teams of people who are largely independent. They work like startups. Uh, everybody in the team has uh, a share in the equity of their particular small business activity. They, they essentially work like startups, each of these teams. They're never more than 100 people because up to 100 people can get to know each other. They're incredibly um, customer intimate because they can work very closely with specific customers. But then they're also incredibly collaborative because they're smaller and non-threatening. And so they can collaborate both internally and they can collaborate with other partners externally. So I think this idea of self-managing teams who are incredibly entrepreneurial, but inside the organization. I'm not going to use the word entrepreneurial because I think that loses the value of entrepreneurship. And then they're they're really focused on on their own goals and and achieving that, but at the same time, collaborating towards a sense of purpose over time with many other small business units like this, small organisms across the organization. So it really emphasizes that the role of purpose to build the culture around that purpose. Yeah, and I think um, yeah, purpose purpose is an overused word, <laughs> obviously <laughs> um, at the moment. But uh, you know, we we've always talked about values and uh, and organisations having a value system. Mm. A lot of a lot of organisations kind of come up with a list of values which are largely meaningless. I think we know that. But if you look inside the organisation, there is a, is a there's a bunch of innate values which make that organisation distinctive and what people truly do believe in uh, over time, and. I think purpose, when it is clearly when it when it is clearly defined in terms of what is it, 
which we're really trying to achieve for the world? What is the barrier we're trying to break? What is the bigger thing we're really trying to achieve, which will make the world a better place in some way? You know, not just altruistically, but in terms of a sense of really something special. That's when people can be truly galvanized. I remember um, going to Hawthorne and talking to many of the employees across SpaceX. And you know, I was talking to rocket scientists, I was talking to administrative people, I was talking to floor cleaners, and they all shared this sense of creating a new civilization on Mars. They weren't talking about the next launch of the rocket or whatever they did specifically in their individual jobs. They, they're working towards creating this new civilization. Now, you might call SpaceX a cult, you might call it kind of, uh, something else, but, but at the same time, they had a real sense of what, what they were there for, why they got up each day and, and, and when they went to, why they went to work. And so I think purpose in that sense can be very, very strong. And, and you also see it very strongly in Japanese companies, for example. They call it ikigai. And uh, ikigai has become a, quite a famous Japanese word over recent times. But it translates quite literally as, why do I get up each morning? Yeah. And if people, disparate groups of people who have all sorts of different tasks and projects which they're working on, but if they have a shared why do I get it each morning? What's the bigger thing which I'm really trying to achieve, which will change our world? Then that brings them together. You know, I want to sort of peel the onion on the setting of purpose a little bit. But before I ask that, I was curious if you had, if there were examples that came to mind of really successful collaboration between companies. Well, I'm working with uh, I'm working with Adidas at the moment, for example. So Adidas uh, is being a real driver, actually, with purpose um, in terms of looking at how sport can be a force for good, and so that's their kind of purpose: how sport can be a force for good on in society. And so, a lot of what they've been doing is social initiatives. So, for example, working across Middle Eastern companies, I was working with them in Saudi Arabia in terms of how can they get women participating mm. in sport and that being a much uh, a contributor towards wellness, but also giving them the confidence to kind of uh, step up beyond their, their previous kind of limitations or inhibitions, but also to think about how can they, they really work well in terms of reducing their environmental impact. So to give you some examples, you know, they recognize they can't do everything themselves. So when it came to plastics, which they found from a consumer point of view was one of the things consumers did not like most, how can they reduce the, the use of plastics? They worked with Parley, which is an NGO, in terms of reducing the amount of plastic in the oceans and coming up with the technique of, of gathering plastic out of the oceans, remolding it, and then creating it into a, a new form of sustainable plastic which and, and, and nylon threads, which they can then use in a knitting format in terms of making their, their, their sport shoes. When they wanted to create a new fabric instead of leather, in terms of Stan Smith trainers, one of their iconic products, they turned to bold threads in California. Bold threads uh, makes synthetic materials. And so they've just created a new type of leather made out of mushrooms or mycelium, to be precise, mm -hmm. the, the, the root of the mushroom. And this is called Milo. And all of their, their sports shoes, which previously used leather, will now use Milo as an alternative uh, non-animal-based uh, fabric. Uh, or when they wanted to work in terms of going further, in terms of looking at the entire um, uh, production value chain in terms of uh, how can they reduce carbon emissions, they said, well, who is actually 
the most sustainable sports shoe company in the world of, of our competitors, basically. And so they turned to one of their competitors called Allbirds, which you might be familiar with. There's a, a wool trainer. Um, they, they originally come from New Zealand. And they, they collaborated with uh, with Allbirds. And so they, they just launched a, a shoe called the Futurecraft, which is measured in terms of its total carbon emissions during its lifetime, 2.9 kilograms, which is about 90% less than the average sneaker and so really trying to make dramatic changes so i think those three examples so you know adidas reckon that what their imagine their imagination takes them to places they can't do things themselves which which they can't do themselves and then they search across the world for be it in terms of competitors be it ngos or other kinds of organizations who can help us to achieve those goals in a better way is it particularly difficult then to collaborate with competitors in the traditional sense is it or i mean presumably there's benefit across the spectrum so it's it's not a unidirectional kind of transaction but i'm curious how you generate kind of a collaboration amongst people who normally should be or normally are thinking of the others as as their competitor <laughs> um, i certainly think it's probably easier for adidas to collaborate with all birds than to collaborate with nike um so you know, I think when it's a when it's collaborating with a specialist company or a smaller company, there's there is mutual benefit in terms of doing that. But but you also see some great examples of of industries coming together. So for example, I'm currently currently working with the book publishing industry, and we brought over a thousand publishing houses or competitors together um, at a, a huge big event uh, towards the end of last year in in Munich in Germany to really think about how can we reduce the amount of transportation which goes into books around the world. So huge amounts of uh, actual um, carbon emitted through all of that distribution. Um, books are printed in one place in the warehouse and then they're shipped across the world. And so instead what they said was, well, we all now use these, these digital printers uh, to print our books and print on demand is something which is pretty familiar everywhere. So why can't we just use this network of, of print on demand printers anywhere in the world to print each other's books. And so then you had an industry coming together um, of all of these different previous, well, they are competitors, but saying, how can we use part of our infrastructure mm. um, to support that? And I think, you know, we'll see that more and more, for example, in terms of the automotive industry, in terms of the charging networks for, for electric vehicles. Um, and so being able to look at, you know, things which the industries collaborate on and then things which the industries compete on. Right. We see uh, something similar here in Alberta amongst companies that work up in the uh, oil and gas sector in the oil sands sharing technology mm -hmm. because they've realized that a lot of the environmental technology is they will make progress more quickly if they all work together on the things that are sort of a common challenge for all of them. So we have some examples sort of even locally here too. So mm -hmm. I'm curious what the role of the leader is, a business leader in not just in collaboration or collaborating amongst companies, et cetera, but just sort of this whole notion that you're talking about of uh, changing the direction of business. So what's, is there something different that leaders should be doing? Or is that the entire point of the recorded book? <laughs> <laughs> it is really, um, you know, I think, uh, I think, you know, it's the recorded book is, is written for leaders and it's written about leaders. And I think those personal stories actually are the ones which, which mean the most to people. But the biggest shift I've seen in business leaders over you know, 30 years or more in, in business is that you're now seeing people really stepping up and looking ahead. 
looking ahead to a, an, an uncertain world where they don't have data and, and therefore certainty in terms of what's going to happen. Uh, they can't uh, develop detailed spreadsheets and discounted cash flows in terms of how successful a future project is going to be. And so they have to be more intuitive, but they also have to be more foresightful because the world keeps changing faster and faster and faster. And as we've emerged out of COVID, I think everybody's got the, the message, don't go back to the old ways. Mm. Look for a new way of, 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 of developing out of this, this acceleration of change, which we've seen uh, over the last two years. So where do you go? Where do you take your organization next? And there's, there's no road, there's no roadmap. Um, there's no firm data analytics to, to show you what's going to happen next. And so in this much more uncertain dynamic world, you need leaders who step up and are more intuitive, more uh, imaginative, and more foresightful. And, and that's a real challenge to them because most leaders have spent most of their time looking backwards. Most of them spend most of their time looking at, you know, what did we do last month or last year uh, in terms of detailed financials. Most of them spend most of their time looking in terms of how, how can they take the capabilities which made them successful in the past and try to use those things to make them successful in the future. None of that works. Um, and so you need leaders with a different vision who can kind of uh, imagine worlds and how they're going to work very differently. And you know, a great example of that would be a leader from your neck of the woods, Scott, um, Toby Ludke from Shopify. And so you know, Shopify, uh, which has really become the partner with millions uh, of, of re- small retailers across the world and saying, you know, how can I transform my very small business? And it might be a two, three-person mom-and-pop shop or it might be a relatively small uh, startup who's looking to scale up. How can I how can I take my business and take it to the world by creating a, a digital platform and then also providing uh, both the back end administrative and support, um, but also how can they provide the merchandising, the promotional and distribution support at the same time? So you create a, a an enterprise structure with relatively few people, and so Toby's kind of vision in terms of how could that work. Um, was instrumental in terms of really driving the organization forward. And so we need so many leaders today. And we have some amazing leaders. Take Anwajichi at 23andMe, uh, which was recently IPO'd, the the genetics coding business. And and she she started 15 years ago by reading an analyst report which said the future of pharmaceuticals is data. And everybody at that time said, the future of, of, of pharmaceuticals is blockbuster drugs. But she said it's data, and so she tried to understand what that meant. She set up a DNA analysis business. At the time when it when she set it up 15 years ago, it cost $9,000 to, to profile somebody's DNA. She reduced it down to $900 by doing it by exception reporting, so just focusing on the areas where a, de- a disease might occur when you look at people's DNA. And then she brought it down further to $99 to profile people's DNA by looking at how can you change the business model. So basically she aggregates the data together. She sells that to either uh, third parties, business to business, like a pharma company. And then that subsidizes the consumer testing further so she can reduce the cost and she creates therefore a flywheel by which she can get more and more people doing the tests and therefore she can build up more data and therefore she can uh, she can, she can subsidize it further. And she, during the, 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 the pandemic, has really rapidly shifted towards now a future of personalized drugs. And so working with companies like GSK and others in terms of uh, in 15 different therapeutic areas now developing truly personalized drugs. That's because she is a leader 
had a vision of the future which was quite, quite clearly different from today. How could it be? And, and, and the, really the convergent healthcare world, not just drug companies and data companies, whatever, but a convergent world and seeing how can you reimagine the entire way health and wellness works. It sort of strikes me that um, what we were talking about earlier, that the idea of a vision, which we've just talked about from leaders, but also the values and the, essentially using the values as almost the, the guideposts as opposed to... Mm-hmm like you say, the traditional metrics of a business where we're basically saying, are we, are we getting closer or further away from the, our overall purpose? So it, it demands a bigger purpose in a world where we don't, we don't have the roadmap, as you put it. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like standing at base camp and uh, looking up at the mountains ahead and deciding, you know, we need a leader who can help us to understand which mountain are we going to climb and why are we going to climb that one? And we need some principles in terms of the kinds of routes we're going to do and you know, how we're going to work together to climb that mountain. But we almost have to make it up as we go along. And we, the, the values give us some guides in terms of what is right and wrong uh, for us as we, as we make it up as we go along, heading yeah. towards this direction which we have ahead of us. And you, you know, look at all sorts of companies. Look at uh, Patrick Brown creating Impossible Foods. You know, 58-year-old professor who kind of had a huge passion to eliminate animals from the supply chain and then bringing together now a huge numbers of both scientists and partners in order to share that passion. And he's not quite sure how it works or where it will work best. And the roadmap keeps evolving as opposed to kind of being set out in time, but they keep learning together and they keep moving forwards. And it's that energy and that purpose which, which really drives them. I had a conversation with Adam Kahane who's a, an author and a facilitator of sort of large, you say large scale collaboration. And he always mm-hmm. talks about the idea that in, in collaboration, you actually don't know the next step until you've taken mm-hmm. the step in front of you. It's very, very um, akin to what you're speaking to. So you've had a chance to learn from business leaders all over the world. Yeah. It sounds like you've interacted, you know, across Europe and Asia and across North America. I'm curious sort of what differences you've seen in, in collaboration and maybe in business, or maybe the two are, are synonymous. Yeah, I think um, that that's a that's a great question because I, I think there's really there's three type, there's three kind of regions or three approaches to the world now. There's the there's the there's the mature markets of the West uh, <laughs> where we where where we are matured and slowing down, and uh, we've we've we kind of struggled to find new ideas, and our, our, our growth has largely stagnated. There's the ultra fast growth of emerging markets and i'm talking particularly of uh, china and increasingly of india actually um, but but particularly china singapore malaysia vietnam and um, so the asian uh, powerhouses where they're they're leapfrogging their way towards a far more advanced state than mature western markets are and then you've got the kind of the the slower growth emerging markets where frugal innovation so doing things simpler but but inspired by what is available around the world it's changing things really fast. So let me just give you a couple of examples. So you know, if you look in Asia, then you know what is really interesting about collaboration, we talked about uh, Haya and Zhang Rubin's uh, washing machine company. But in general, you know, Asian companies are very driven by their culture and uh, two things, both their, their, their relationship culture, which is about families and 
and, and friends and partners and and gunjai, uh, which is this this kind of uh, reciprocal relationship, give and take between people all the time. But they're also driven by Taoism, uh, which is about going with the flow and so being able to be constantly adaptable uh, to a changing world. So I think that's really interesting. And you know, you see some phenomenal Asian companies. You know, if I was to list my ten most innovative companies in the world, I think probably eight of them would be from Asia now. So I think you know. We really need to look to Asia in terms of how is how our markets being shaped and how our, our companies doing things differently. So, you know, companies like Ping An, for example, a huge insurance company who then has become the world's largest medical platform with Good Doctor, they're a f- fabulous example as to how you can fundamentally pivot your company into new areas within just a few years. Um, but then, if you look at some of these emerging markets who are going slower, so the frugal innovators. You know, if you look in Africa with huge numbers of people, not a lot of money, uh, but huge numbers of people who who become very resourceful. So if you look at uh, mobile payments, mobile payments first emerged out of Africa, far before we saw them on the streets of America or Europe yeah. um, or Japan. And it was the ability, as soon as they leapfrogged and to start using mobile phones, and they never had fixed phones, so they started using mobile phones very quickly, they could suddenly use SMS messaging text messaging to to transfer money in a very simple way by giving people a code and then the bank started accepting these codes and then would redeem the code for cash at the place. And so you'd start paying for anything or transferring to family or getting paid by an employee. Um, you'd start to get paid by SMS message and it would become a system. This was codified by Safaricom. It became known as M-Pesa. M-Pesa was really the first mobile currency. And now we see that across the world in terms of mobile payments taking off in huge uh, ways. And so, you know, same with healthcare in terms of Narayana Health from India. Uh, this is where heart surgery can be done at about a tenth of the price of what would happen in the States and where health insurance costs around about $90 per year for the average uh, Indian citizen. And so, changing the business model, finding with the resources available, how can you make things work in a different way? And so I think that really drives, you know, the the necessity drives the invention uh, of new ways of working, particularly collaborative ways of working. So with the different approaches to collaboration sort of coming from the the different roots, the different cultural roots, Mm -hmm. and sort of seeing that thread from, from cultural roots to how they how people collaborate or how different countries collaborate, what kind of lessons can we learn from, from let's say Asian countries? Like, so if we're, a, if we're a Western culture, which is obviously me, what can we learn without having that culture to sort of support us? Well, I think, I, I think there's some simple things and, and, and they, you know, obviously it's about relationships with starts. A relationship starts with a shared value and the relationship starts with give and take. Um, so, <laughs> you know, that, that might sound incredibly obvious, but but look at our own relationships, particularly in organisations, and how many of them do actually start with shared value, as opposed to what just what's in it for me, and how many of them actually do build on give and take. And so we're we're looking in terms of what is the reciprocity of it uh, as we go. And so I think that's a, a very very simple starting point. The next thing which I would say you see across the world, despite those different kind of approaches which I described, is something which Amy Edmondson, a professor at Harvard Business School, has spent a lot of time focusing on. And that is about the dual forces of psychological safety and stretch. 
So you need to give people stretch mm-hmm. uh, if you want them to work together and to kind of think together in terms of how can they achieve more. So you've got to give them that space and that incentive to stretch. But also you need to give them that psychological safety so that they can explore how is this relationship going to work or how is this team going to work together. And when they screw up, it's not anybody's fault. It's, you know, it, it, it's actually a collective resolution that actually it's a learning experience and we can do better next time. So I think there's something really interesting in terms of when you look at teams and how teams of people work or, 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 or partnerships work, then it's this combination of stretch. They, they set ambitious goals, but also at the same time, they make sure and they, they agree to a safe environment for working and learning from each other and not just falling apart the first time something goes wrong, but saying, how can we learn from that? And how can we do it better next time? So that whole experimental, like you say, experimental mindset is a big, a big portion of collaboration and it just shows up a bit differently in different parts of the, of the world. Is that Kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you, you could take it forward in terms of saying it's experimental too. I think you need those forces of stretch and, and safety, but but experimental would be a good way to kind of then say that's how it continues over time. Right. You know, probably probably the the the, the most deployed cultural initiative I've seen at the last two three years is the growth mindset of of Carol Dweck. Um, and I'm sure many many people will come across the growth mindset before, which is saying you can either have the fixed mindset, which says let's keep trying to make the existing world better, and that essentially means let's stretch the old world and keep trying to stretch it from its old principles, or do you do you have this growth mindset of constantly learning and constantly uh, experimenting, failing, and learning from that? And this whole kind of shift towards getting people to be more growth mindset or experimental in their ways of working, you know, I see it everywhere. I see it in the Coca-Colas. I see it in, 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 in Microsoft. Um, I see it in terms of Alibaba in, in China. I've worked with them on it. I see it in terms of uh, uh, some of the Japanese companies who are letting go of their old Kaizen principles of efficiency and saying, how can we be much more kind of agile and experimental instead. And this all mindset in terms of Kaizen and process-driven culture is actually holding Japanese companies back. And so how can we be much more, if you like, flexible uh, in terms of the ways in which we're working? Do you see these principles also sort of going beyond business, like moving into sort of non-governmental or even governmental organizations? Do you see government picking these things up? (laughs) Yeah, um, I, I did a lot of work with the United Nations. So... As soon as the pandemic struck, the United Nations had their biggest challenge, if you like, in many ways, um, they've ever had. And and that's because they seek to work through consensus. Um, So whether it's the World Health Organization or many of the other UN uh, organizations which which work together, they they ultimately try to work through consensus of each of the different governments who who are participants. And so in many cases, if you take WHO, the World Health Organization, and all of the different things they were trying to do and kind of uh, get a consistent approach to during the pandemic, they've also been working with around about 200 or 250 governments at the same time to find a common way through that mess. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's not been easy. And so being able to kind of move away from um, the, the old mindsets of hierarchical controls about one size fits all, about very process driven approaches which take time, uh, about quality management over delivering some form of result. Um, you know, so 80% is better than 100%, for example. Um, about being able to bring in commercial partners to help them to work faster. Um, about being able to improve diversity within their teams so that they have 
non-conforming people um, who were challenging their traditional thinking. Mm -hmm. So diversity in, in, in all senses, um, really driving greater creativity in their teams. So you suddenly see a, a, a remarkable change in their, their, their organization. I would say I've seen, I've seen some organizations like Microsoft change. Well, since Satya Nadella joined, um, it's taken them about six, seven years to really make a significant change, as I was describing earlier. But in, in the World Health Organization and other parts of UN, you, you'd see that this similar change in 18 months or even 12 months because they had to. And because it was such a big gap from where they were beforehand, they were really institutional in terms of working. And I think, you know, you, you say about governments, well, you know, more generally governments do need that rapid transformation if they're going to respond to the changes in the world. And if they're going to respond to the fragmentation of society and, you know, more different needs, more different audiences, uh, which they require to deliver and, and faster delivery of initiatives over time. So, you know, I think, uh, I think yes, uh, huge in terms of agility and agility and collaboration are, are bedfellows. When you sort of think through the, the leaders that you've had a chance to, to work with and speak to and, and study, yeah. is there one that comes to mind right away when I say the words, you know, collaborate or say the word collaborate? It, it has to be Satya Nadella. And one of the things which he said, you know, he, so he talks, he talks a lot about people and he talks a lot about the simplicity of what we're trying to do. He, he talks a lot about the growth mindset and needing to move away from an organization where we where we're all know-it-alls, we're all experts to an organization where we're all learn-it-alls. Um, so he talks about those things. But the, the most profound thing he said to me is that you know organizations today are platforms. And I thought he was going to talk about that, that, that sense of platform like Amazon or like Alibaba, where it's, you know, it's a platform bringing external customers and suppliers together. But he didn't. He talked about something different. He talked about organizations being platforms of talent. Mm. And he talked about organizations being creating the platforms by which talent can thrive. So if my, a company like Microsoft has 100,000 people, for example, you know, Microsoft's ultimate responsibility should be to allow those people, the, the talent of those people, to thrive, to give them a platform. And the platform connects them with other people. And the platform then gives resources, gives space, gives purpose, gives money um, for those talents to thrive and to thrive together, particularly. And if you can channel them in certain directions, not all of it in, in, in specific directions for commercial gain, but, but, but some of it. Yeah. And if you can think about the purpose of the organization in a, in a, in a broader sense than just you know, making windows or making cloud-based solutions, but you think about the organization, about helping our business customers to grow or helping our consumers who use Microsoft to actual, actually live more fulfilling lives than themselves, be it in terms of better educated, better playing games with Xbox or whatever it might be, but live more fulfilling lives. Then you give more space for people to innovate and to, to, to unlock those talents. So I thought the profound thing was organizations creating platforms for talent. You know, what, what's striking me throughout all of what you've been describing is this, there's a completely different feel to what you're describing compared to say what you would think of in a traditional business, right? Yep. It just, it feels bigger or more inclusive, or it just feels like it's a little more right, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I think 
that is the feeling that not only customers, but, you know, staff and, and, you know, people are looking for when it comes to jobs, they're looking for sort of that, that feeling as well. So I think when you talk about this overarching purpose and values and, and being guided by a good leader, whether in collaboration or just in business, which I'm starting to sort of see as synonymous almost, mm-hmm. it, you're, you're aiming for that feeling, right? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, we, we've all heard of the great resignation. Uh, so the amount of people who, um, after almost two years of pandemic, of lockdown, of working remotely or working from home, they're feeling, do I want to be a slave to the system? Do I want to be a slave to the office desk? And they're thinking, you know, there is more to life. And so they're thinking about how can I do something which is more valuable? How can I compute? Uh, co- how can I contribute in a better way? They found new ways to collaborate uh, as they worked remotely. They found that actually they don't have to just collaborate mainly with people who are in the adjacent cubicle or in the, the same building or city as them, but they can collaborate with anybody from any company in the world. I mean, that's right. been one of the great benefits of, of remote working. Suddenly, with a Zoom call, you can you you can be as connected to somebody in a completely different industry, a completely different uh, uh, nation. Uh, whereas in the past, you would you'd, you'd put the primacy on the physical contact, and so that has changed people's perceptions in terms of what do they want to do, how do they contribute, and what is valuable for them. You know, this has been just a fascinating conversation, and I think we <laughs> we could go into sort of different angles and go much deeper into. To specific examples even, but mm-hmm. curious for my, my last question, this is a question I always ask okay. around book recommendations. And I'm curious if there is a book that you would, you normally recommend or that you would normally give as a gift other than your own, of course. Wow. Obviously you would give those all the time, but is there a book that you, or even one that you've drawn particular inspiration from? Wow. That, that is a really hard question, <laughs> Scott. So, uh, <laughs> that is a really hard question. I actually read an awful lot of books and, um, and uh, I work with a, an organization called Thinkers 50, which looks at the top uh, business leaders or business thinkers from across the world um, in terms of what are they doing uh, all of the time and how are they thinking differently. And I'm just trying to think, which if I was to choose one book, one book, one book. <laughs> God, I'm, gi- I'm going to give you my shortlist as I'm thinking. Um, Humanicity uh, by Gar- Gary Hamill is, is an absolutely fabulous book, which I'm loving at the moment. So it's about how to bring humanity back into to, to business much, much faster. So I, I, I really love that one. Uh, what else? I'm going to say 4,000 Weeks. 4,000 Weeks is a new book by um, Oliver Berkman. And he, he, he talks about 4,000 Weeks. And 4,000 Weeks is, uh, is approximately 80 years. And uh, 80 years is now the average lifespan of most people on Earth. So what would you do in 4,000 Weeks? And, you know, we're obsessed with, we're, we're obsessed with the short term. We're obsessed with our to-do list. We're obsessed with, you know, what will I do today? And everybody listening to this call is actually, you know, they're, 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 they're actually taking a bit of time out from their to-do list. So that's good. But uh, most of the time, we're living with our daily struggles. And we're not thinking about how can we make the most of our 4,000 weeks. So how can we actually contribute and how can we personally get more out of our 4,000 weeks. And so I think that's a fantastic book. And it's, it's essentially a time management book, but it's about, you know, what will you do uh, with your time? And I think, you know, the last two years has made lots of people think about how the world is changing fast. I think we're going to see more change in the next 10, 10 years than the last 250 years. 
I think now is the time when you have more innovation than ever before. And now is the time when people need to step up and step up to change organizations because we need better organizations, but also step up to find out what, what can you truly do and what do you want to do in a world which is changing so quickly. I appreciate that sort of that suggestion in part because it harkens back to sort of the whole, I guess, focus of even business recoded, which is to step up, mm-hmm. a step up and take the long, longer view and then mm-hmm. use that to guide you. Like you say, the looking up to the peak of the mountain and, and aiming for that. And this is about doing that with this book is about doing that with your your own life as well. So I do appreciate that. With yourself. Yeah. I very much appreciate you taking the time today for the for the conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you, Scott. It's great to talk to you. Take care. I come away from my conversation with Peter with a sense of hope. I think it comes from knowing that collaboration and all the good things that I think it includes, like creativity and connection and trust, are also part of how future business will need to operate. A couple of things really resonated with me from our conversation. Peter talked about a purpose being bigger than the business in a sense, about how a business can be a contributor to something positive. In fact, he suggested that it was perhaps less about purpose and more about the values of the company, shaping how that company acted to achieve its vision. I think this is important in business as well as collaboration because it's one of the ways in which we as individuals can decide if we want to participate It's one of the ways we decide really on the merits of the business or of the collaboration. Peter also described Satya Nadella's perspective on how business is a platform for talent, which makes complete sense to me. And I wonder though how this perspective could be translated into the world of collaboration. Is collaboration simply a tool that gets used to unlock talent or is it a platform for talent itself? My gut tells me that it is and can be both. I can absolutely recommend Peter's latest book, Business Decoded, because it provides some of the great insights into and examples of collaboration and how it factors into business strategy and success. Now, of course, it provides way more than that, and it is a great read. If you know someone who sees business as a collaboration and would appreciate Peter's insights and examples, please take a moment to send them this episode and show them how to subscribe to the show. Until the next time, thank you for listening and happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.